What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I had a fascinating conversation with Cameron Hughes a, a few weeks ago. He literally travels the world looking for good wine, for great wines, particularly from boutique wineries, wineries that you may not know of, never heard of. And, you know, these wineries, they'll produce typically some extra wine every year. They do that because on the front end, they commit to, you know, they, they get purchasers who commit to a certain number of cases. And in order to know that they're definitely going to be able to make, say, 500 cases of wine this year, they do production for 600 cases. And just in case something goes bad, because inevitably something does. But very often they end up with an extra 100 cases of wine and you know, the, the channels for distributing it are already locked up. They've already made their deal for the year. So Cameron Hughes comes along and says, I'll take that extra wine and I'm going to package it. I'm, actually, the wineries will bottle it in, in uh, bottles that have the Cameron Hughes label on them with a lot number. So you're not, you're, so what Cameron Hughes can do then is sell the wine to you at a dramatically lower price than these real high-end, beautiful, extraordinary boutique wineries are selling some of the world's best wines at. He can sell it to you at a much lower price because he's not degrading their brand, essentially, by discount. Because uh, these are wineries that would never never imagine discounting their wines. They're so good. They're so in demand. And Cameron Hughes has picked this stuff up. And so you buy it with a lot number, like lot 633, this great Riesling. Or what Louise and I had last night, it was lot 614. It was a Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley, a 2015 wine. And boy, has it aged well. It is. It was so good. It was so deep and oaky and cherry and chocolate and just the flavors are extraordinary and the prices are spectacular so check it out ch wine as in cameron hughes wine chwine.com slash tom t-h-o-m or you can text the word wine to 511 511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order so uh, text the word wine w-i-n-e that's what's associated with our program our podcast here Text the word WINE, W-I-N-E, to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with a minimum three-bottle order. Exceptional value, extraordinary wine, Cameron Hughes Wine, chwine.com slash Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. A headline in the Australian press causes me to think we need to stretch our imagination. We need to push the boundaries of how we've allowed ourselves to think up to this point. We have put a kind of a little picket fence around ourselves and said, you know, we're not going to think outside this fence. We're going to stay in here where it's comfortable. And I think that we need to step over the fence and look at how far might Donald Trump and the Republican and his Republican cronies actually go. And if they go as far as I think they're preparing to, how must we respond the thing that really kind of pushed me over the edge on this, and I wrote a piece for, for uh, Alternate this morning that's going through the editorial process over there right now. I don't know if it's going to be up in the next hour or the next five hours or whatever, but, but the thing that pushed me over the top was a piece from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, also known as ABC. You can find it on the Australian Broadcast, and, and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation is Australia's equivalent of NPR PBS, except that ABC is much larger and more ubiquitous. NPR is large and ubiquitous when in the radio space. But on the TV space, PBS is this little tiny player. 
but I've spent a lot of time in Australia. The ABC channel in Australia is king. It's a major, major force in Australia's media. So this is the headline, and the headline says it all. Donald Trump could be ready to order a strike against Iran, as Australian government figures say. So Trump, according to Australia, according to some sources in Australia, is now actually preparing to strike Iran, like in the next month. In fact, here's the opening paragraph. Senior figures in the Turnbull government have told the ABC that they believe the United States is prepared to bomb Iran's nuclear facilities perhaps as early as next month, and that Australia is poised to help identify possible targets. End of quote. So I think it's time that we imagine all the different possibilities. And, and I'm, I'm just going to present a couple. I would love to hear from you what you think are some of the possibilities in this realm of what Donald Trump may be up to and the Republican Party. And, you know, I, I, this is not the first time we've raised this question. How far might Trump go? Right. A week before the election, a week before Trump became president, Tony Schwartz, who wrote Trump's book, uh, Art of the Deal, and spent months following him around, getting to know him, uh, you know, learning all about Donald Trump in ways that probably are, are more analytical, more in-depth, more knowledgeable than anybody, uh, than anybody else. I mean, you know, perhaps some of his members of his family are close enough to him that they can see these things, but they're not going to be talking about it. But Tony Schwartz, a week before the election, came right out and said that he thought that Donald Trump is, was going to do three things if he became president. This, was be, this is Tony Schwartz before the election. He said if Donald Trump becomes president, number one, he's going to attack the free press. That well, has been one of the defining characteristics of Trump's presidency. Number two, he'd compile an enemy list and begin getting revenge on those people he thinks has slighted him. That's already going on. The, 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 the giant purges from government is throwing people into outer darkness and trashing them and their lives and all this kind of stuff. And number three, Tony Schwartz said that he thought that Donald Trump was going to declare martial law if he became president in order to solidify his power. Schwartz told The Independent, the, the British newspaper, he said, when I said that, I got a lot of rolling of the eyes from people in the media and other people to whom I was making that case. I think today people really do begin to understand that this is a volatile man with very low self-control. So how would this happen? Well, Andrew Buncombe, the guy who interviewed Schwartz for The Independent back in October of 2016, he writes about his conversation with Schwartz, and he says, asked how Mr. Trump would go about undertaking such a drastic measure, you know, martial law. Schwartz said many of Mr. Trump's supporters are police, members of the border guard force, and, the, and members of the right wing, uh, the far right wing of the, of the military and the police departments. This is enough to make you think that Charlottesville was just a dress rehearsal for the very fine people uh, among the brown shirts, and that maybe our own version of Kristallnacht, you know, where the where the crazies came out, the the, the hard right, uh, mostly young men with sticks and clubs came out and smashed the windows of Jewish-owned businesses and synagogues, and you know that our very own homemade version of Kristallnacht which I think was kicked off in, in Charlottesville, may not be far off. For example, consider this kind of thought experiment. In November, the Democrats win the House. Maybe the Senate, too. Probably not, but maybe the Senate, too. But in November, they win the House. And so now you've got a bunch of Republicans like Devin Nunes who, once the Republicans get control of the House and have the power of the subpoena, which is an incredibly awesome power, once the Democrats get control of the House in, uh, in January, see, it's now November of 26, 2018, if, let's imagine, they get control of the House uh, uh, in January, they're going to start investigating what the Republicans have been doing. And I believe that many of these Republicans, particularly Devin Nunes and his friends, have been actually committing crimes. And there's been no investigation of this because of the, uh, you know, because of the, uh, the Republicans run the House. They won't issue subpoenas on this stuff. So what happens if right after the election, now keep in mind, Mueller is not going to issue an indictment 
or any more indictments that might have anything to do with Trump or his family beyond the middle, I think, next week. Because there's this 90-day window that would run from the end of the first week of, of August to the first week of November. I believe that's 90 days. All of August, all of September, all of October. Yes, that's 90 days. The federal law says for 90 days, uh, actually it may be policy, but whatever it is, uh, but for 90 days before an election, you don't indict a candidate. You wait until after the election. So the day after the election, Trump, Trump Don Jr., Jared, Devin Nunes, a bunch of Republicans, they're all indicted by, by Robert Mueller for, for obstruction of justice and other actual crimes. What does Trump do? What do the Republicans do? Well, first of all, Trump loves to create crises and then solve them himself. He did this with North Korea, he did it with Obamacare, he did it with DACA. It looks like he's doing it with Iran and with immigration. So what might the crisis be that Donald Trump would want? Well, keep in mind, the Constitution in Article 1, Section 8 explicitly gives Congress the power to put down insurrections. To quote the, the actual language in the Constitution is that Congress has the power to, quote, suppress insurrections. Now, you'll recall that the day after President, uh, the day after Donald Trump was elected president, over a million people were in the streets in the United States. Trump might declare an equally large demonstration right after the election that coincides with all these arrests as an insurrection. And the Republicans still controlling Congress might vote to put down that insurrection, to give Trump that power, which, by the way, could include the power of suspending the election of 2020, in which Trump is up for re-election. Now, this is not some weird idea that nobody ever thought of. Back in 2004, during the Bush administration, Leading up to the November elections in 2004, the Congressional Research Service, which is the arm of Congress that does investigations, was asked by a number of members of Congress that the president could suspend elections. And their answer was very straightforward. They said, while the executive branch does not currently have this power, it appears that Congress may be able to delegate this power to the executive branch by enacting a statute. So if Heather Heyer was only the first anti-Trump protester to be murdered by white supremacists, and... Right after the election, dozens or hundreds or thousands of people are being murdered by white supremacists. Does the president shut down the country? Does he go into lockdown? Do we go to martial law? Do we suspend elections? See, this was the strategy that Tim McVeigh thought he was playing out. This is basically the storyline of this book, The Turner Diaries, that is well known among white supremacists. That that this in, in the Turner Diaries, they blow up a federal facility, sort of like the Oklahoma City b- building. And as a result of that, the president cracks down with gun control. He thought that Bill Clinton would do that. Tim McVeigh thought Bill Clinton would do that. And then all the good, well-armed white people come out of their houses and go out in the streets with their guns and start shooting people of color and Jews and kill them all. And so in the end, the triumphant white race, Protestant race, uh, Christian race, let's say. I, I don't remember if they killed Catholics or not. But in the, in the end, the triumphant white race rules America again, right? This is what Tim McVeigh thought, you know, he was doing. Then we say, well, what about the courts? Can't the courts stop Trump? And so far, with his Muslim ban and with his brutal, uh, you know, uh, imprisonment of children, he has been stopped by the courts, and he's allowed himself to be stopped by the courts. Although they didn't reunite all their children, all those children with their parents uh, day before yesterday or the day before that, which was the deadline set by the court. So at a certain level, he's defying the court, but he appears to be trying to go along with the courts. So, so far, so good, right? But consider Andrew Jackson, Donald Trump's hero among all the presidents. Andrew Jackson is the guy Donald Trump thinks, I'm like that guy. He hung his picture right next to his desk in the Oval Office. Okay. Andrew Jackson told the courts, including the Supreme Court, twice that he was going to ignore their orders. The first was in the case of the Second National Bank. The Supreme Court said there's nothing unconstitutional about this bank. It should stay open. Congress, both the House and the Senate, passed legislation saying we support the bank. Andrew Jackson shut it down, which, by the way, that and his paying off the national debt led to the largest, deepest, and longest Great Depression in the history of the United States, number one. And number two, when Andrew Jackson was planning on relocating the Cherokee Indians from Georgia to Oklahoma by having them march a thousand miles and, and, you know, and, and a huge percentage of them died, 
it's referred to as the Trail of Tears, the Supreme Court said, you can't do that, President Jackson. It's illegal. And Andrew Jackson said, uh, referring to John Marshall, who was the Chief Justice at the time, said, John Marshall has, has made his decision, let him enforce it. In other words, I'm not going to enforce it. Because the enforcement mechanism for the Supreme Court is, which is Article 3 of the Constitution, is found in Article 2 of the Constitution, which is the president, the executive branch. And if the president chooses not to execute the law as defined by the Supreme Court, it doesn't get executed. Congress doesn't have the power of police. Congress can't tell the FBI what to do. Congress can't tell the police departments what to do. Congress can't tell the army what to do. That's the executive branch, Article 2. So you'd say, well, so what else could Trump do? Well, he could create a war. That's a great way. You know, again, if, if he and his, and his, and his sons get, get indicted, if he's looking at family members going to jail, if he's losing, looking at you, losing his financial empire, he could start a war. George W. Bush did this in order to get reelected. He told Russ Baker about it right up front before he, or not Russ Baker, he told uh, Mickey Herskowitz, his biographer in 1999, that if he got elected president, he was going to go to war with Iraq in order to get enough political capital to privatize Social Security. He said it right out loud. And then he did it. So now, which brings us back to my very beginning point here, where the Australia Broadcasting Corporation is running around pulling their hair out right now with this headline, this, this, this uh, lead paragraph, senior figures in the Turnbull administration tell the ABC they believe the United States is prepared to bomb Iran's nuclear facilities perhaps as early as next month. So what do we do? I mean, late in the 2016 presidential campaign and early on throughout, throughout Trump's presidency, we have failed to imagine how far he could go. And he's gone that far and beyond it over and over. And we have not been ready. You know, there's an entire generation of Germans, Italians, and Spaniards who are aging into their twilight years right now, wishing they had had enough imagination in the early 1930s to know where Franco, Mussolini, and Hitler were going to go six years down the road. It's time for a conversation. What do we do? Uh, you know, at every stage along the way, we've said, oh, Trump would never do that. And then he's done it. And there hasn't been a systemic response. What do we do if he gets indicted and decides to declare, to declare martial law? If his, if his uh, uh, very fine people go into the streets and start burning buildings or shooting people? If Heather Heyer was only the first uh, anti-Trump protester to be murdered by white supremacists? What do we do? I've been asking this question here on Twitter. I've got a bunch of responses. Uh, Sandy D says, I think you should stress on a regular basis the idea you brought up of a dual impeachment of Trump and Pence, not just singular Trump. Thank you. Mig says, don't count on the Republicans to stand up to the corrupt president. They'll be silently next to him, unconditionally protecting their white privileged status. Otherwise, they have nothing. Epona's muse says, wait for Kavanaugh to be seated, then expect Herr Trump's declaration to be president for life. There's no longer any doubt that that is where he is going now that he owns SCOTUS. The Supreme Court martial law will ensue to prevent Americans from protesting this. Let's ask somebody who's lived through it. Dr. Henry Oster was a child in 1933 when he was uh, when he and his family were taken off to the uh, out of the Lotz ghetto and taken to Birkenau, the extermination camp, and to a firing squad in Auschwitz, and then ultimately to Buchenwald, where he was finally liberated as a young man, uh, the only survivor of the city of Köln, as I recall. Uh, of we would say Cologne, Germany, uh, the only survivor of that of that city of the of the 2011 Jews who were uprooted from that city in 1941. He wrote a book about this called "The Kindness of the Hangman." Even in hell, there is hope. Uh, Henry Oster, Doctor Henry Oster, is his name. The website is thekindnessofthehangman.com. Uh, Doctor Oster, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back, Tom. It's a real privilege. Is this question that I'm asking, A, in your opinion, having lived through the rise of Nazism in Germany, is this, am, am I off the wall here? Have I gone too far? Am I, am, I, am I being an alarmist, number one? And, well, let, let's start with that. It, no, I, first of all, you're not an alarmist because you're only repeating what history has shown repeatedly. There is one a slight disagreement that I have with you, that you cannot forget we are America and we are Americans. We cannot compare ourselves to the German Nazis 
or the German population at that time, which was in full agreement with very, very few exceptions and very little opposition or resistance, primarily because they were inclined to agree with Hitler and, among other things, because they were so intimidated by the threat of concentration camp and ultimate annihilation. And I'm not talking about Jews now, but I'm talking about the German citizen. I am uh, very optimistic. Uh, You mentioned about uh, Trump's possibilities of uh, martial law or declaration. He is not supported by the majority. He lost the majority. We have the peculiarity of an electoral college. We've had shown in the past, unfortunately, with civil war, that this country is willing to go to war among ourselves, and there would be a resistance to any some of these undemocratic and totalitarian ideas he may come up with. Uh, right now, he's threatening to shut down the government unless he gets his way with the wall or immigration. That kind of totalitarian ideas are being proposed. In most cases, of course, he chickens out and backs up, uh, backs out. But the threat is still there. If you look at the American population, which is not pure as the Germans consider themselves racially and uh, ideologically, we are uh, used to be called a melting pot. Uh, I consider our population more like a salad bowl. <laughs> we do not lose our individuality ethnically, religiously, even politically. We're just like in a solid bowl, tossed together. But if something comes along that is not in our American way of life, we will have ways to make things not occur the way a president wants it. The unfortunate thing is that he has his own political party support, which only currently is in the majority in the Senate and not going to have his way the way he ideally wants it. He has to abide by the reasoning of our government. So I do not feel threatened, as you might be. The only thing is, unfortunately, I may be wrong. Oh, ouch. Um, So basically what you're saying is that your faith in the institutions of this country and the people of this country, is that both are more resilient than the German people were back in the 30s. And therefore, there would, you know, if, if Trump goes total wackadoodle, there will be pushback that will be successful. Is that essentially what you're saying? I don't think it would be successful. I would hate to see the idea of a martial law. And with everybody in this country gun-toting, who knows what kind of resistance and violence that may produce. Anything like this, I do not believe this country will ultimately stand for. Now, how to get rid of this president by normal, legal, illegal ways is another matter that some people might take into hand, and you might really have a violence that we do not anticipate and hopefully never see. I do admire this country in one way. We did get rid of a president who violated his office and responsibility and allowed Nixon to resign and live normally and even in some ways gradually a little bit more respectfully. Hmm. I do not believe this country will violently overthrow a government. I'm also convinced, as we have seen in some cases, that some of his commands and some of his, well, I guess their commands, were not fulfilled by those responsible. The military has its own way of evaluating irrational commands. For example, they're not responding to his, to, to his order on trans people in the, in the military. Well, I believe if he were, as he threatened, to push the bigger button that North Korea has, I don't think that the the electricity would have gone through. There are guidelines, guidelines, safeties that control the impulses and sometimes the command of the the president. So in order for a president to use war as a political instrument, the way George W. Bush did with Iraq, Bush in 99 
before he was even elected president, told his biographer, Mickey Herskowitz, that if he became president, he was going to invade Iraq because the number one way to be seen as a successful president was to exercise your power as commander in chief during time of war. And that that war in Iraq would be large enough and long enough, unlike his father's. He said, my dad wasted all his political capital by only having his war 100 days long or, or maybe it was 100 hours, whatever it was. It was a short period of time that if I have that war, it's going to be so successful that I'll be able to privatize Social Security, which he tried to do in 2005 after he was reelected. He right. gave a big speech. He said, I have political capital. So he lied us into a war for political purposes, Bush. But in order to do that, he had to get the entire Republican Party and the media from Fox News to The New York Times all convinced that Iraq represented a threat to the United States and had weapons of, war, of mass destruction. All lies, but he had to convince us all first. Are you, are you suggesting that if Trump tries to go to war in Iran to get out of his own problems, to distract us from his problems, that he has not yet done that sales pitch, that the American people aren't with him on that, and that he would have to? I don't think that... His own government will be entirely, or his own party will be entirely uh, for that. Iran, Iran is not just some uh, third world country like we like to make it out to be. We will be intimidated not to allow some of these things Trump has in mind to be fulfilled. Uh, Bush, for example, I was convinced, tried to be with his limited capabilities. He wanted to be better than his daddy. And he said, if daddy chickened out, because Bush Sr. said, we will not occupy Baghdad. Because right. if you occupy a capital, you're responsible for the whole country. We were not interested in the country. We were interested in uh, Saddam Hussein not to succeed like Hitler did in Europe, that Hussein would not succeed in the Middle East. And, of course, you had the coalition and many other countries agree with it. The idea also, which a lot of people do not know, that Bush Jr. was bamboozled, guess what, by no other country than Iran. Well, here's what happened. The Iranian and the Iraqis fought an eight-year-long war to a stalemate. They sacrificed hundreds of thousands of young men, gave them a key around the neck that when you die, it's your entry to heaven. And they killed each other in huge masses, and nobody won. There was peace, sort of, an agreement. Right. The Iranians would not allow this to be the final outcome. So they planted very cleverly through an arms deal and whatever it is, the idea that the Iraqis have secret weapons, chemical oh, weapons. Oh, is this uh, Adman Khashoggi? Use. Yes. Is Mr. And Khashoggi, yeah. what happens is that we believed it. We went for it. We fell for it. We didn't listen to the Israeli who said that's nonsense. We went for it. And what is the outcome? Iran is laughing up their sleeve. We, America, got rid of Saddam Hussein which the Iranians could not do in eight long years. Yeah. It was a victory for Iran by the action of an ignorant, an innocent, perhaps, president. Dr. Henry Oster, his book is The Kindness of the Hangman. Even in hell there is hope. And thank you for the optimistic perspective. It's great talking with you, sir. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. 
And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Boy, we've got, uh, you know, so many pieces to this conversation. Talking to Henry Oster, that, that was refreshing. You know, America's resilient. Uh, we're, not, we're not as crazy as the Germans were. I hope so. Laura in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Laura, what's up? How are you? Um, well. We've had some great conversations over time. Um, I'm the one that called in and asked if the Republican Party is the fifth column, mm. and it looks like they they turned out to be for a good chunk so, of them. Yeah, yeah. I have a I have a, a, a I've been coming up with the answer to your um, original question um, is what can we do and what is Trump up to? First, I think what he's up to is if he can get Kavanaugh seated. I agree with the other previous callers. Um, and I do agree with you. If he can get Kavanaugh seated, what he, we know that Mueller is not expected to present uh, to uh, indict a sitting president. Right. So what Trump wants to do is he wants to create havoc by creating a war, create, do the martial law. That's even if we protest. Remember, mass protests, he could justify that. Right. As, that, as, he could he reason. could call that to, that an insurrection and say, I'm asking Congress to invoke its Article One, Section eight powers to declare these uh, protests all across the country, a mass insurrection so that I can call out the military and put them down. Exactly. And he can use uh, uh, starting war with Iran as a reason to suspend the election. What he's up to is being president for life. I do agree with that. And if Kavanaugh is seated and if if the rule is you cannot indict a sitting president as long as he's sitting, his plan is to just to be seated forever. Well, okay. but there is something we can do. And I think what, the first thing we have to do, of course, is the 70 percent of us who do not follow him must blow, vote blue in November. And I think that if we do these massive protests right before the election, I think we should sing America the Beautiful and be as nonviolent as possible and not engage and film any violence and allow the people who are responsible for it to go down for it and not get involved as much as we can. Hopefully it will not, you know, be the guns and all that stuff. But the other thing that we can do and my personal opinion, is we have to think outside the box. I think Mueller needs to indict him. I think that America needs to vote blue. I think that before Kavanaugh is seated, we need to uh, what is it? Um, censor the congressional body that have been ill, that has been acting out, like the Nunes and all right. these people. You know, there's Article One, Section Nine of the, of um, the Constitution. Right. Yeah. Say Congress is and and there's there's so many articles you can censor the congressional leaders and we can recall them for not representing us. Wow. So there's there's uh, a lot of options here, Laura. Thanks for a great list uh, and always good talking with you. Thank you so much for the call and I hope you guys in Santa Rosa stay safe from the fires. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you and uh, Kyle in Albany, New York. Hey, Kyle, what's on your mind today? Well, hello there. I was just hoping that you're going to talk about your opening uh, intro there um, where you were talking about the white supremacists and everybody moving towards partial martial law. Yep. So this is just a personal antidote, and I know those aren't great, but I do follow politics here in upstate New York. I'm in the Albany area. I'm a computer guy, and just I had to hire a subcontractor to run some cables for us. This guy felt comfortable enough telling a stranger that, like, him and his buddies, who all live up towards Vermont, and they live east of the Albany area. Uh, this was, um, by the way, in 2014, okay, during the Obama administration. I think they were more scared of the black man than they were of other things. But he told me they were willing to go to the mat and go to civil war and that they were preparing for it. Yeah. They even used that phrase, civil war. Yep. 
I'm seeing the same thing. I mean, we, you know, we've got a lot of this kind of activity happening here in Portland, but it's not just Portland. It's happening all over the country where these hard right groups are coming out into the open and, you know, with their open carry and their and their and their military and Christian paraphernalia, which is, you know, the hijacking of a religion and and our in our in the military of our country. And they have been embedding themselves now for decades inside our military, inside our police departments, inside our the Air Force Academy. And Mikey Weinstein wrote a book about this years ago. These guys were not exaggerating, Kyle. No, and I, and I can tell in the same way you're talking about it, they use these symbols and the iron crosses and all those things yeah. and the tattoos and all that. You know, it's just to me, uh, I talked to Joe Madison about this. I moved up here in 2000. I had no idea how like white supremacist this area is, but it totally is. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah, Thank you're you welcome. Very much Good talking to you, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for the call. Check it out. Okay, let's check in with talkmedianews.com and find out what's going on in the world today. On the line with us is the author of Sideswipe, uh, Bob Nay. Congressman, welcome back to the program. I'm seeing this, I, you know, I didn't catch this in real time. I'm, I'm, I'm having to read it on Twitter and, and news sources. Apparently, Rudy Giuliani is trying to move the goalposts. He's saying, number one, that complicity or collusion with a foreign government is not in and of itself a crime. And number two, that Trump wasn't physically in that meeting which suggests to me that he was there by speakerphone. Um, what do you know about this stuff? Well, he, he moved the goalpost, and, and what he is saying is that basically they will be meeting with Mueller if new conditions are set. And basically he's shed light when these new conditions are set, and one of them is that you know the Justice Department is, sort of has an admission that collusion is not a crime, and Giuliani actually says he can't find collusion as a crime in the code, in the uh, United States you know, revised code. And justice has clearly said <laughs> that collusion is a crime. So he's trying to basically get them to an admission as a new criteria, the collusion is not a crime. Wow. Now, if you... What if he's right? What if, I mean, you know, one of the... John Paul Stevens' dissent in in Citizens United in October 2010, his, his dissent says that if this decision stands... Then Tokyo Rose, who was the, 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 the propaganda woman from Japan out of World War II, who was telling our troops to surrender and, you know, everything will be fine. Uh, then Tokyo Rose would be able to participate in the American electoral process. Correct. And, and apparently the decision has stood. And apparently uh, foreign governments, I mean, you know, we all know Israel's been doing it forever with AIPAC and whatnot. Um, but it's, but that seems more benign. You know, that's just a political action group. But, you know, another government coming in and saying we're going to indirectly fund you through the NRA, you know, we're going to launder our money or our oligarchs are going to make you have, you know, it's, you know, is it illegal or is it perfectly legal under Citizens United? Well, I mean, you know, you know that ruling, how it went and what it did. And, you know, so we don't know uh, the answer to that question, then, Bob, is, is what you're saying, right? right? Yeah, right. I mean, the Justice Department is is saying that collusion is a crime. They have said that. Right. Um, but yes, if you take the theory that collusion is not a crime, then many people, you know, we can name espionage, uh, you know, people that have been jailed over the years. Then, therefore, uh, why were they jailed? You know, well, if you're talking about like the Rosenbergs, it was giving away the, the bomb. That wasn't collusion to get somebody elected. That was giving away state secrets. Right. But uh, but, you know, that's the that's the goalpost that Giuliani wants now. And then if right. you look at what's going on, they are building this up for the recent tweet yesterday, Tom, that this was a rage over something that Cohen said, uh, you know, or Lanny Davis has said about Cohen on a news report, and the president went into this rage, and then he did these tweets about Mueller and crooked Hillary, et cetera, et cetera. Then, of course, he revealed the off-the-record meeting with the New York Times. Uh, he did that in the tweet, and now he's talking about shutting the government down for the border wall. Now, I don't believe that this was all rage yesterday. I think if you look at this whole, this whole deal... Uh, they are so weak that the president is trying to all at once set a complete bomb of issues out there. The border wall, shutting the government down, Mueller, crooked Hillary, you know, the New York Times, um, the fake news, everything all at one time. By the way, I just received a phone call live from uh, a rally with Vice President Mike Pence. 
you know. Mm-hmm. I, I have a, a, a person in that rally, and they just called me, and they said that the vice president, who's in here for Troy Balderson, uh, who is a candidate uh, in a district that normally would be Republican, and I don't know what's going to happen in the district, but the way they're running this campaign, the vice president just said, bow your heads and get on your knees for Troy Balderson. Now, that's not (laughs) necessarily normal campaign rhetoric. There is a fear, and if you look at the report that came out um, recently, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the the analysis that was done by... um, by Con with the New York Times, Nate Nate Cohn, I mean, of the mm-hmm. New York Times. I've not. If you if you look at that analysis, it's fascinating because the districts that are across the United States now these are six sixty districts, right, where they could be in play for the control of the House. The electorate in those sixty districts, Tom, are seventy percent white, whereas the United States is overall seventy percent white, and the electorate electorate in those sixty districts are sixty five percent suburban. Whereas the United States overall is 55% suburban. And then in those 60 districts, they boast about 31% college graduates, you know, and, and on and on statistically. But in short, if you look at what he's saying, because these are potentially lean Democrat seats now, that means that there has to be a new strategy, and that means that the Republicans have to be in fear. And I think this is all, you know, forced planned and concentrated with these tweets, mixing the entire ballgame up and throwing the issues out there. I think Fascinating. Fear. Fascinating stuff. Bob Nay, Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Good talking with you. Bob Nay is also the author of Sideswiped, a remarkable book about how politics actually happens in Washington, D.C. from his own perspective. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back to the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Robert Wright's brilliant new book, Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. This is from the first chapter, which is titled Taking the Red Pill. We're on page three. He's talking about the movie The Matrix. Remember Nemo and all that? I saw The Matrix in 1999, right after it came out. And some months later, I learned I had a kind of connection to it. The movie's director, the Wachowski siblings... Uh, had given Kino Reeves, Reeves three books to read in preparation for playing Neo. One of them was a book I had written a few years ago, the uh, earlier, The or Moral Animal, Evolutionary Psychology and Everyday Life. I'm not sure what kind of link the director saw between my book and The Matrix, but I know what kind of link I see. Evolutionary psychiatry can be described in various ways, and here's one way I had described it in my book. It is the study of how the human brain was designed by natural selection to mislead us and even enslave us. Don't get me wrong, natural selection has its virtues, and I'd rather be created by it than not be created at all, which, so far as I can tell, are the only two options this universe offers. Being the product, a product of evolution is by no means entirely a story of enslavement and delusion. Our evolved brains empower us in many ways, and they often bless us with a basically accurate view of reality. Still, ultimately, natural selection cares about only one thing, or I should say, cares in quotes about only one thing, since natural selection is just a blind process, not a conscious designer. And that one thing is getting genes into the next generation. Genetically-based traits that in the past contributed to genetic proliferation have flourished, while traits that haven't have fallen by the wayside. And the traits that have survived this test include mental traits, structures and algorithms that are built into the brain and shape our everyday experience. So if you ask the question, what kinds of perceptions and thoughts and feelings guide us through life every day? The answer at the most basic level is not the kinds of thoughts and feelings and perceptions that give us an accurate picture of reality. No, at the most basic level, the answer is the kinds of thoughts and feelings and perceptions that helped our ancestors get genes into the next generation. Whether those thoughts and feelings and perceptions give us a true view of reality is, strictly speaking, beside the point. As a result, they sometimes don't. Our brains are designed to, among other things, delude us. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Some of my happiest moments have come from delusion, believing, for example, that the tooth fairy would pay me a visit after I lost a tooth. But delusion can also produce bad moments, and I don't just mean moments that, in retrospective, in retrospect, are obviously delusional, like horrible nightmares. I also mean moments that you might not think of as delusional, such as lying awake at night with anxiety. 
or feeling hopeless, even depressed for days on end, or feeling bursts of hatred toward people, bursts that may actually feel good for a moment but slowly corrode your character, or feeling bursts of hatred toward yourself, or feeling greedy, feeling a compulsion to buy things or eat things or drink things well beyond the point where your well-being is served. Though these feelings, anxiety, despair, hatred, greed, aren't delusional the way a nightmare is delusional, if you examine them closely, you'll see that they have elements of delusion, elements you'd be better off without. And if you think you would be better off, imagine how the whole world would be. After all, feelings like despair and hatred and greed can foster wars and atrocities. So if what I'm saying is true, if these basic sources of human suffering and human cruelty are indeed a large part of a are in large part the product of delusion, there is value in exposing this delusion to the light. Sounds logical, right? There's a problem that I started to appreciate shortly after I wrote my book on evolutionary psychology. The exact value of exposing a delusion to the light depends on what kind of light you're talking about. Sometimes understanding the ultimate source of your suffering doesn't by itself help very much. Let's take a simple but fundamental example, eating some junk food feeling briefly satisfied, and then only minutes later feeling a kind of crash and maybe a hunger for more junk food. This is a good example to start with for two reasons. First, it illustrates how subtle our delusions can be. There's no point in the course of eating a six-pack of small powdered sugar donuts when when you're believing that you're the Messiah or that foreign agents are conspiring to assassinate you. And that's true of many sources of delusions that I'll discuss in this book. They're more about illusion about things not being quite what they seem, than about delusion in the more dramatic sense of the word. Still, by the end of the book, I'll have argued that all of these illusions do add up to a very large-scale warping of reality, a disorientation that is as significant and consequential as out-and-out delusion. The second reason junk food is a good example to start is that it's fundamental to the Buddha's teachings. Okay, it can't be literally fundamental to the Buddha's teachings, because 2,500 years ago when the Buddha taught, junk food as we know it didn't exist. What's fundamental to the Buddhist teachings, though, is the general dynamic of being powerfully drawn to sensory pleasure that winds up fleeting at best. One of the Buddha's main messages is that the pleasures we seek evaporate quickly and leave us thirsting for more. We spend our time looking for the next gratifying thing, the next powdered sugar donut, the next sexual encounter, the next status-enhancing promotion, the next online purchase, but the thrill always fades, and it always leaves us wanting more. The old Rolling Stone lyric, I can't get no satisfaction, is, according to Buddhism, the human condition. Indeed, the the Buddha is famous for asserting that life is pervaded by suffering. Some scholars say that's an incomplete rendering of his message, and that the word translated as suffering, dukkha, could, for some purposes, be translated as unsatisfactoriness. The book is Why Buddhism is True, the Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high-tech. And yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary. And it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. Welcome back. Rudy Giuliani was on... um, 
uh, I believe, CNN and Fox this morning. And he's been making some very strange comments. He's he he has first of all, he has is is talking now about a meeting on July 7th, 2016. July 7th was the day that Trump that night, Trump gave a speech in which he said, pretty soon we're going to have some real dirt on Hillary Clinton. And I'm going to be holding a press conference in the next couple of weeks to to reveal all this stuff to you. So Trump clearly thought he had Hillary in the crosshairs. And earlier that day, apparently, there was a meeting with Don Co- John Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, and Rick Gates, who, by the way, is now flipped, to plan for the meeting the following week with the Russians in Trump Tower, with uh, Mrs. Velisiskitnaya and whatever, you know, all these, all these people, this, this meeting that... And, and he's also saying Trump wasn't physically present at that Russian meeting in Trump Tower with Don Jr., uh, leading a lot of people to speculate, well, what the hell does that mean? Does that mean he was there by speakerphone, which is a common thing for Don? It's start, you know, as, as Giuliani's stories are shifting and rapidly, I think it's starting to tell us something about, you know, what's going on. On the line with us is Juan Cole, the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan, the author of Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And uh, he writes for The Nation. You can find his writings at thenation.com. His website, juancole.com. You can tweet him. J.R.I. Cole uh, is the Twitter handle. Juan, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for joining us. You wrote a, a brilliant piece here. Uh, in the, well, it's in the nation, in fact, and the the title of it is "How the Neocon Plan to Destabilize Iran Will Blow Back on the United States." I've been speculating for the last two hours on this program that if Trump finds himself trapped, if if uh, Mueller actually delivers indictments of Trump's children, for example, he said he probably won't indict a sitting president, but if the facts are so horrible that they you know go way beyond Watergate. Um, and Trump finds himself backed into a corner that one of the ways out uh, would be to provoke a domestic insurrection and, and uh, declare a state of emergency, uh, you know, which he and, the, and Congress can do under Article 1, Section 8, at least Congress, Congress can, and uh, you know, suppress the rebellion. Another would be to start a war. And Iran and Iraq, excuse me, Iran and North Korea are real high on that list of possibilities. And it's always seemed to me that if we went to war with Iran, that that would be one of those World War I kind of scenarios that would rapidly spin out of control since Iran has uh, actual allegiances with Russia and China. Um, so what, what is your take on all this? And do you think that the Trump frantic factor plays into it? Or do you see this merely as the neocon, you know, these, these efforts to have war with Iraq the, or with Iran, excuse me, uh, particularly Pompeo's speech last week? Uh, do you see these more as just an effort to kowtow to uh, Netanyahu and the, and the neoconservatives in the United States? Yeah, well, when, uh, you know, Obama was elected in uh, 2008 and then um, Trump came in, uh, the neoconservative faction really has been in the wilderness uh, and hasn't had very much impact on uh, U.S. foreign policy. Well, they were badly They're... discredited with the Iraq disaster, right? Yes, uh, they were discredited uh, because they had promised us that the Iraqis would be so happy to see us, they would put garlands around the necks of our troops, and uh, Iraq would become a democracy and a shining beacon on the hill and would transform the entire Middle East because of how great the United States would make it into. Right. Uh, and uh, so, yes, uh, they, they went down in flames on those promises, uh, but they're still there, and there's big money behind them, and there's big influence behind them, and um, they weren't completely locked out of the Obama administration. Uh, the Kagans were basically allowed to run Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, so now I think because of um, Trump's uh, dislike of Iran and his withdrawal from the nuclear accord uh, and his threats against uh, Iran to put it under severe sanctions, the neocons have sniffed that there's, you know, blood in the water and they're coming out 
uh, and making these arguments that Iran would be so much better off if only the United States would destabilize it. In, in uh, I, I wrote an article about this, too. It just went up on alternate.org, um, in which I was suggesting that if Trump needs to, to have a crisis, um, if the Democrats win the House in November but haven't been sworn into office until January, that period of time from November through December to the first week of January is a real critical period where if we were to see something wildly out of the ordinary, a genuine black swan event, you know, where, where, where some sort of international crisis or national crisis is provoked that could be so large that Trump could say, you know, we can't even swear these people in. We need continuity of government. We're just going to keep everybody that we have right now right in place, and I'm declaring an emergency or whatever, that uh, a, a war in Iran could do that. Uh, and Mueller is not going to deliver a, an indictment against Trump until after the election, which would be uh, right after November. And I understand that Trump's sanctions of Iran go into effect the first week of December. Am I remembering that wrong? I believe it's the first week of November. First week of November. So it's the same week as the election. So, wow. So, uh, you know, could we be looking at a perfect storm or am I just like way out here in paranoid land? Well, I mean, I don't think uh, it's unprecedented for presidents to wag the dog, uh, sort of trying to di divert uh, domestic problems uh, by uh, getting involved in big foreign affairs uh, projects. And uh, starting a war is, uh, is one of those. Trump used to regularly uh, accuse Obama of planning to start a war with uh, Iran yes. every time his, uh, his opinion polls uh, dropped. And so... It's something that's obviously on his mind. Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, the, uh, when, when um, George W. Bush met with the uh, then pre Spanish uh, prime minister uh, or, or president before uh, the start of the Iraq war, uh, a transcript got leaked of their discussions. And as I remember it, one of the things they discussed was, possibly uh, taunting Iraq with a U.N. overflight, uh, trying to get it to shoot it down, uh, and uh, so to be a pretext for then invading. Right. So one of the things that may happen is that out there in the Gulf, uh, where the Fifth Fleet is stationed, uh, there, there could be U.S. Uh, behind-the-scenes provocations in hopes that Iran will take the bait. And, of course, the Iranians... Uh, talk big, and they're very proud people, and it's uh, not entirely impossible that, that Trump could get their goat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you see this playing out if Trump gets his war with Iran? Oh, well, of course, it's a huge disaster for everybody. Uh, you know, the estimates are that if you count uh, the, the health care that has to be provided to the uh, wounded veterans, of whom there were tens of thousands, uh, uh, along with all of the uh, other investments made in I Iraq, and indeed we, we had, you know, the United States had to send back in 6,000 troops because of the rise of ISIL, which wouldn't have happened if the U.S. hadn't overthrown the Iraqi government. That you're talking on the order of, of, of $6 trillion, uh, and Iran is three times more populous and three times as large geographically as Iraq. And massively more wealthy, far more than three times more massively, wealthy. Yeah, of course. They, they have a much bigger GDP. Uh, well, and moreover, uh, a war with Iran would disrupt uh, potentially uh, oil deliveries, which would raise the cost of petroleum very high, and that would be an additional massive cost for industrialized countries. So, I mean, the, 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 the economic impact alone on the United States could, I mean, you know, one doesn't want to use hyperbole, but it could be in the medium term crippling. I mean, it mm. could, you know, demote the United States from its position as the uh, premier economic and political power in the world. So it could provoke the next Great Depression, basically. But, oh, sure. But, but you know, my my uh, my biggest concern is that it that it that it play out the way World War One did, you know, where one country attacking another country 
causes that country to reach out to its allies with whom it has mutual defense treaties. In this case, Iran would reach out to Russia and say, we've been attacked by the United States. You, you've got a deal that you'll protect us. Uh, we've been protecting your interests here for a long, long time, uh, you know, in Syria, right across the, where you've got your only deep water port in the Mediterranean. And so, you know, come on in and help us. And now we're at war with Russia. And then Russia might reach out to China and say, come on, help us. And we'd reach out to Canada and Mexico and, and the NATO countries. And now you've got a hot war going on, a NATO war that could break out along the borders of Russia. Uh, this becomes World War III, and it could happen in a matter of hours or days. Or, again, am I, am I just going way too deep into the dark side here, Juan? <laughs> well, it's a, a very dark uh, vision and obviously not completely implausible. On the other hand, Tom, uh, one thing to, to keep in mind is that um, R- Russia and the United, uh, Russia and China are not allies of Iran, mm. uh, and actually neither leadership much cares for that of Iran. The likelihood of either of them putting themselves out in any serious way uh, for Iran is low. Uh, you know, the, the does Iran have other does does Iran have forgive my interrupting, but we only have about a minute left here. One does sure. Iran have other allies in the region that they could call on? Well, uh, it, it would be guerrilla allies. So the Iraqi Shiite uh, uh, militias, for instance, could well attack those 6000 U.S. troops that are left in Iraq. So, and they and they would mobilize Hezbollah in Lebanon and in, they, and they in, in Israel. Hezbollah, they would. They would mobilize uh, the Hazara Shiites in Afghanistan, uh, which is already a basket case. So I think it's at that level that there would be pushback. It would be guerrilla. It would be, to some extent, covert. But it could be very deadly to, to your right. interests. So it would be a very messy uh, regional conflict, basically. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Interesting. So what, what's your call for action? Uh, we're talking with Juan Cole, the history professor at the U- University of Michigan. What's, what's your, what should we be doing? What do you, what do you suggest? Well, in American politics, the elites make decisions. So you have to affect who's the elite. Uh, uh, vote for anti-war candidates in November. Uh, campaign for them. Give them money. Uh, get out and organize anti-war protests. Uh, people, you know, in the United States, I, th- I think the people have enormous power, and they very seldom exercise it. And I'm just puzzled as to why that is. Uh, uh, you know, a third of the voters are likely to vote in November. So who are those voters that will vote? Are the, the rich, old, cranky white people who want war? Uh, you have to offset them. Mm. Yeah. So we all need to show up. We need to get out there. We need to get active. We need to be mobilizing. We need to be planning. We need to make sure everybody we know is registered to vote. And we need to make sure and we need to double check and make sure that we haven't been purged off the voting rolls by this massive nationwide Republican program now to throw throw uh, uh, people off the voting rolls. Whew. A lot of work. Professor Juan Cole, thanks so much for being with us, Professor. Thanks for having me, Tom. Great talking with you. Janet in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Hey, Janet, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hey, Janet. So I'm calling about a guy who called, his name was Rick, and he was very upset about the fact that white people needed to teach white people not to be prejudiced mm-hmm. or something of like, like that. I have a lot of clients, and I'd say 80% of my clients are white people. And I've had this conversation with folks um, over the last eight, 10 months because of all the stuff that's going on. And you know, I don't think white people actually know there's privilege. They don't think they're any more privileged than anybody else. They think that um, people of color can buy a house anywhere they want to. They don't know that people of color pay higher interest rates on loans. They have no clue. They think that everything, you know, the bank does this thing, and it's fair right. for everybody. Yeah, the vast majority, and I've been saying this for years and years, and, and, and um, it's interesting to me how many particularly African-Americans, don't believe me when I say I didn't even realize this stuff until I was in my 30s or 40s. 
maybe my fifties. I mean, it's, it's, it's like we live in this white bubble and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and with, with no interaction with people of other races and, and don't, and, and, and what interactions we have are not the kind that would inform us about the privileges available to them versus the privileges available to us. Yes. And then in here in Michigan, in the Detroit area, we have channel four and they perpetuate fear. They, they, just a Sinclair station. People that watch them, um, and all the people of color. You should be afraid of them. You shouldn't go to Detroit. All, all these these fears that they put into people, and then that is another bubble yeah. where they actually believe that people of color are dangerous. Well, and that and, was the and, major that was the major message of all of the media in the United States up until just the last twenty years or so. And and people of color uh, and each one had its own unique stereotype, whether it was Asian, African American or or uh, uh, Native American or, Latino, or, 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 Latino, yeah. or Hispanic, yeah. Um, yeah, and they, but they had these very specific stereotypes, and basically the only characters that were allowed into sitcoms and cartoons and anything else were the ones who were playing out those stereotypes, and that is only just starting to break down in the in the entertainment industry, and that's one of the ways that young white people learn about what the what the rest of the world is and how these these other folks are living. But now, thanks so much for being with us all day today. Uh, Again, my article on this topic is up over at alternet.org, and it'll start showing up in other places around the web. You can check it out and and comment on it. And we'll continue the conversation tomorrow. What? How far will Trump go? And how should we react? And no, I'm not. I'm not afraid of this. I think that we need to look this head on and deal with it. And and we all need to get out there and get active. So be sure you're registered to vote. Get active tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.